Section 25 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7, by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Rebellion of Wat Tyler, A.D. 1381, by John Lingard. Richard II of England, at eleven years of age, succeeded to a heritage of foreign complications and wars, which were a legacy from the reign of his grandfather, Edward III. At the request of the Commons, the Lords in the King's name appointed nine persons to be a permanent council, and it was resolved that during the King's minority, the appointment of all the chief officers of the Crown should be with the Parliament. The administration was conducted in the King's name, and the whole system was for some years kept together by the secret authority of the King's uncles, especially of the Duke of Lancaster, who was in reality the Regent. France, Scotland, and Castile continued their hostilities against England, and during the first two years of Richard's reign, the ministers had no difficulty in obtaining ample grants of money to carry on the wars. In the third year, the expense of the campaign in Brittany compelled them to solicit yet additional aid. Various methods of taxation failing to raise the amount required, the commons, in great discontent, demanded alterations in the council and after long debate, reluctantly consented to the imposition of a new and unusual tax of three groats on every person, male and female, above fifteen years of age. For the relief of the poor, it was provided that in the cities and towns the aggregate amount should be divided among the inhabitants according to their abilities, so that no individual should pay less than one groat, or more than sixty groats for himself and his wife. Parliament thereupon was dismissed, but the collection of the tax gave rise to an insurrection which threatened the life of the king and the existence of the government. At this period, 1381, a secret ferment seems to have pervaded the mass of the people in many nations of Europe. Men were no longer willing to submit to the impositions of their rulers or to wear the chains which had been thrown round the necks of their fathers by a warlike and haughty aristocracy. We may trace this awakening spirit of independence to a variety of causes, operating in the same direction. To the progressive improvement of society, the gradual diffusion of knowledge, the increasing pressure of taxation, and above all, to the numerous and lasting wars by which Europe had lately been convulsed. Necessity had often compelled both the sovereigns and nobles to court the goodwill of the people. The burghers in the towns and inferior tenants in the country had learned from the repeated demands made upon them to form notions of their own importance, and the archers and foot soldiers, who had served for years in the wars, were, at their return home, unwilling to sit down in the humble station of bondmen to their former lords. In Flanders, the commons had risen against their Count Louis and had driven him out of his dominions. In France, the populace had taken possession of Paris and Rouen, and massacred the collectors of the revenue. In England, a spirit of discontent agitated the whole body of the villains, who remained in almost the same situation in which we left them at the Norman conquest. They were still attached to the soil, tallyable at the will of the lord, and bound to pay the fines for the marriage of their females 
to perform customary labor and to render the other servile protestations incident to their condition. It is true that in the course of time many had obtained the rights of freemen. Occasionally, the king or the lord would liberate at once all the bondmen on some particular domain, in return for a fixed rent to be yearly assessed on the inhabitants. But the progress of emancipation was slow. The improved condition of their former fellows served only to embitter the discontent of those who still wore the fetters of servitude, and in many places the villains formed associations for their mutual support and availed themselves of every expedient in their power to free themselves from the control of their lords. In the first year of Richard's reign, a complaint was laid before Parliament that in many districts they had purchased exemplifications out of the Domesday Book in the King's Court, and under a false interpretation of that record had pretended to be discharged of all manner of servitude, both as to their bodies and their tenures, and would not suffer the officers of their lords either to levy distress or to do justice upon them. It was in vain that such exemplifications were declared of no force, and that commissions were ordered for the punishment of the rebellious. The villains, by their union and perseverance, contrived to intimidate their lords, and set at defiance the severity of the law. To this resistance they were encouraged by the diffusion of the doctrines so recently taught by Wycliffe, that the right of property was founded in grace, and that no man who was by sin a traitor to God could be entitled to the services of others. At the same time, itinerant preachers sedulously inculcated the natural equality of mankind, and the tyranny of artificial distinctions, and the poorer classes, still smarting under the exactions of the late reign, were by the impositions of the new tax wound up to a pitch of madness. Thus the materials had been prepared, it required but a spark to set the whole country in a blaze. It was soon discovered that the receipts of the treasury would fall short of the expected amount, and commissions were issued to different persons to inquire into the conduct of the collectors, and to compel payment from those who had been favoured or overlooked. One of these commissioners, Thomas de Bampton, sat at Brentwood in Essex, but the men of Fobbings refused to answer before him, and when the chief justice of the common pleas attempted to punish their contumacy, they compelled him to flee, murder the jurors and clerks of the commission, and carrying their heads upon poles, claim the support of the nearest townships. In a few days all the commons of Essex were in a state of insurrection, under the command of a profligate priest who'd assumed the name of Jack Straw. The men of Kent were not long behind their neighbours in Essex. At Dartford, one of the collectors had demanded the tax for a young girl, the daughter of a tiler. Her mother maintained that she was under the age required by the statute, and the officer was proceeding to ascertain the fact by an indecent exposure of her person, when her father, who had just returned from work, with a stroke of his hammer beat out the offender's brains. His courage was applauded by his neighbours. They swore that they would protect him from punishment, and by threats and promises secured the cooperation of all the villages in the western division of Kent. A third party of insurgents was formed by the men of Gravesend, irritated at the conduct of Sir Simon Burley. He had claimed one of the burghers as his bondman, refused to grant him his freedom at a less price than three hundred pounds, and sent him a prisoner to the castle of Rochester. With the aid of a body of insurgents from Essex, the castle was taken and the captive liberated. 
at maidstone they appointed wat the tyler of that town leader of the commons of kent and took with them an itinerant preacher of the name of john ball who for his seditious and heterodox harangues had been confined by the order of the archbishop the mayor and aldermen of canterbury were compelled to swear fidelity to the good cause several of the citizens were slain and five hundred joined them in their intended march toward london when they reached blackheath their numbers are said to have amounted to one hundred thousand men to this lawless and tumultuous multitude ball was appointed preacher and assumed for the text of his first sermon the following lines when adam delved and eve span who was then the gentleman he told them that by nature all men were born equal that the distinction of bondage and freedom was the invention of their oppressors and contrary to the views of their creator that god now offered them the means of recovering their liberty and that if they continued slaves the blame must rest with themselves that it was necessary to dispose of the archbishop the earls and barons the judges lawyers and questmongers and that when the distinction of ranks was abolished all would be free because all would be of the same nobility and of equal authority his discourse was received with shouts of applause by his infatuated hearers who promised to make him in defiance of his own doctrines archbishop of canterbury and chancellor of the realm by letters and messengers the knowledge of these proceedings was carefully propagated through the neighbouring counties everywhere the people had been prepared and in a few days the flame spread from the southern coast of kent to the right bank of the humber in all places the insurgents regularly pursued the same course they pillaged the manors of their lords demolished the houses and burned the court walls cut off the heads of every justice and lawyer and juror who fell into their hands and swore all others to be true to king richard and the commons to admit of no king of the name of john and to oppose all taxes but fifteenths the ancient tallage paid by their fathers the members of the council saw with astonishment the sudden rise and rapid spread of the insurrection and bewildered by their fears and ignorance knew not whom to trust or what measures to pursue the first who encountered the rabble on blackheath was the princess of wales the king's mother on her return from a pilgrimage to canterbury she liberated herself from danger by her own address and a few kisses from the fair maid of kent purchased the protection of the leaders and secured the respect of their followers she was permitted to join her son who with his cousin henry earl of derby simon archbishop of canterbury and chancellor sir robert hales master of the knights of st john and treasurer and about one hundred sergeants and knights had left the castle of windsor and repaired for greater security to the tower of london the next morning the king and his barge descended the river to receive the petitions of the insurgents to the number of ten thousand with two banners of st george and sixty pennons they awaited his arrival at rotherhithe but their horrid yells and uncouth appearance so intimidated his attendants that instead of permitting him to land they took advantage of the tide and returned with precipitation tyler and straw irritated by this disappointment led their men into southwark where they demolished the houses belonging to the marshalsea and the king's bench while another party forced their way into the palace of the archbishop at lambeth and burned the furniture with the records belonging to the chancery 
The next morning they were allowed to pass in small companies, according to their different townships, over the bridge into the city. The populace joined them, and as soon as they had regaled themselves at the cost of the richer inhabitants, the work of devastation commenced. They demolished Newgate and liberated the prisoners, plundered and destroyed the magnificent palace of the Savoy, belonging to the Duke of Lancaster, burned the temple with the books and records, and dispatched a party to set fire to the house of the Knights Hospitallers at Clerkenwell, which had been lately built by Sir Robert Hales. To prove, however, that they had no views of private emolument, a proclamation was issued forbidding any one to secrete part of the plunder, and so severely was the prohibition enforced that the plate was hammered and cut into small pieces, the precious stones were beaten to powder, and one of the rioters who had concealed a silver cup in his bosom was immediately thrown with his prize into the river. To every man whom they met, they put the question, with whom holdest thou? And unless he gave the proper answer, with King Richard and the Commons, he was instantly beheaded. But the principal objects of their cruelty were the natives of Flanders. They dragged thirteen Flemings out of one church, seventeen out of another, and thirty-two out of the Vintry, and struck off their heads with shouts of triumph and exultation. In the evening, wearied with the labor of the day, they dispersed through the streets and indulged in every kind of debauchery. During this night of suspense and terror, the Princess of Wales held a council with the ministers in the tower. The king's uncles were absent. The garrison, though perhaps able to defend the place, was too weak to put down the insurgents, and a resolution was taken to try the influence of promises and concessions. In the morning, the Tower Hill was seen covered with an immense multitude who prohibited the introduction of provisions, and with loud cries demanded the heads of the Chancellor and Treasurer. In return, a herald ordered them by proclamation to retire to Mile End, where the King would assent to all their demands. Immediately, the gates were thrown open. In return, a herald ordered them by proclamation to retire to Mile End, where the King would assent to all their demands. Immediately the gates were thrown open. Richard, with a few unarmed attendants, rode forward. The best intention of the crowd followed him, and at Mile End he saw himself surrounded with sixty thousand petitioners. Their demands were reduced to four. The abolition of slavery, the reduction of the rent of land to four pence the acre, the free liberty of buying and selling in all fairs and markets, and a general pardon for past offences. A charter to that effect was engrossed for each parish and township. During the night, thirty clerks were employed in transcribing a sufficient number of copies. They were sealed and delivered in the morning, and the whole body, consisting chiefly of the men of Essex and Hertfordshire, retired, bearing the king's banner as a token that they were under his protection. But Tyler and Straw had formed other and more ambitious designs. The moment the king was gone, they rushed at the head of four hundred men into the tower. The archbishop, who had just celebrated mass, Sir Robert Hales, William Appledore, the king's confessor, Legge, the farmer of the tax, and three of his associates were seized and led to immediate execution. As no opposition was offered, they searched every part of the tower, burst into the private apartment of the princess, and probed her bed with their swords. She fainted, 
and was carried by her ladies to the river which she crossed in a covered barge the royal wardrobe a house in carter lane was selected for her residence the king joined his mother at the wardrobe and the next morning as he rode through smithfield with sixty horsemen encountered tyler at the head of twenty thousand insurgents three different charters had been sent to that demagogue who contemptuously refused them all as soon as he saw richard he made a sign to his followers to halt and boldly rode up to the king a conversation immediately began tyler as he talked affected to play with his dagger at last he laid his hand upon the bridle of his sovereign but at the instant walworth the lord mayor jealous of his design plunged a short sword into his throat he spurred his horse rode about a dozen yards fell to the ground and was dispatched by robert standish one of the king's esquires the insurgents who had witnessed the transaction drew their bows to revenge the fall of their leader and richard would have inevitably lost his life had he not been saved by his own intrepidity galloping up to the archers he exclaimed what are ye doing my lieges tyler was a traitor come with me and i will be your leader wavering and disconcerted they followed him into the fields of islington whither a force of one thousand men-at-arms which had been collected by the lord mayor and sir robert knowles hastened to protect the young king and the insurgents falling on their knees begged for mercy many of the royalists demanded permission to punish them for their past excesses but richard firmly refused ordered the suppliants to return to their homes and by proclamation forbade under pain of death any stranger to pass the night in the city on the southern coast the excesses of the insurgents reached as far as winchester on the eastern to beverley and scarborough and if we reflect that in every place they rose about the same time and uniformly pursued the same system we may discover reason to suspect they acted under the direction of some acknowledged though invisible leader the nobility and gentry intimidated by the hostility of their tenants and distressed by contradictory reports sought security within the fortifications of their castles the only man who behaved with promptitude and resolution was henry spencer the young and warlike bishop of norwich in the counties of norfolk cambridge and huntington tranquillity was restored and preserved by this singular prelate who successively exercised the offices of general judge and priest in complete armor he always led his followers to the attack after the battle he sat in judgment on his prisoners and before execution he administered to them the aids of religion but as soon as the death of tyler and the dispersion of the men of kent and essex were known thousands became eager to display their loyalty and knights and esquires from every quarter poured into london to offer their services to the king at the head of forty thousand horse he published proclamations revoking the charters of manumission which he had granted commanding the villains to perform their usual services and prohibiting illegal assemblies and associations in several parts the commons threatened to renew the horrors of the late tumult in defence of their liberties but the approach of the royal army dismayed the disaffected in kent the loss of five hundred men induced the insurgents of essex to sue for pardon and numerous executions in different counties effectually crushed the spirit of resistance among the sufferers were lister and westbrook 
who had assumed the title and authority of kings in Norfolk and Suffolk, and Straw and Ball, the itinerant preachers who have already been mentioned, and whose sermons were supposed to have kindled and nourished the insurrection. When the Parliament met, the two houses were informed by the Chancellor that the King had revoked the charters of emancipation which he had been compelled to grant to the villains, but at the same time wished to submit to their consideration whether it might not be wise to abolish the state of bondage altogether. The minds of the great proprietors were not, however, prepared for the adoption of so liberal a measure, and both lords and commons unanimously replied that no man could deprive them of the services of their villains without their consent, that they had never given that consent, and never would be induced to give it, either through persuasion or violence. The king yielded to their obstinacy, and the charters were repealed by authority of Parliament. The commons next deliberated and presented their petitions. They attributed the insurrection to the grievances suffered by the people from, one, the purveyors, who were said to have exceeded all their predecessors in insolence and extortion. Two, from the rapacity of the royal officers in the chancery and exchequer and the courts of the king's bench and common pleas. Three, from the banditti called maintainers who in different counties supported themselves by plunder, and arming in defense of each other set at defiance all the provisions of the law, and four, from the repeated aids and taxes which had impoverished the people and proved of no service to the nation. To silence these complaints, a commission of inquiry was appointed. The courts of law and the king's household were subjected to regulations of reform, and severe orders were published for the immediate suppression of illegal associations. But the demand of a supply produced a very interesting altercation. The commons refused, on the ground that the imposition of a new tax would goad the people to a second insurrection. They found it, however, necessary to request of the king a general pardon for all illegal acts committed in the suppression of the insurgents and receive for answer that it was customary for the commons to make their grants before the king bestowed his favors. When the subsidy was again pressed on their attention, they replied that they should take time to consider it, but were told that the king would also take time to consider of their petition. At last they yielded. The tax upon wool, wool fells, and leather was continued for five years and in return a general pardon was granted for all loyal subjects who had acted illegally in opposing the rebels and for the great body of the insurgents who had been misled by the declamations of the demagogues. End of section 25